Good morning. Good morning. Hi, I'm Shalom, and I'm going to be reading the scripture this morning. So can everyone please turn with me to Acts 27, 9 through 26. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of the Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along the Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempest wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cotta. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat, and after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jetson the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold... God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. This is the word of God. Thank you, Shalom. The great philosopher Woody Allen has said, life is filled with misery, loneliness, and suffering, and it's all over way too soon. All of us face storms on a routine basis, And at some stage in our life, we face shipwreck, things just going totally to pieces. And the difficulty in those moments as Christians is trying to figure out how our faith fits into that, how God fits into that. And a lot of people who are not Christians put God on trial. How could God do this? One of the interesting things that you find when you come to the Bible is that God never bothers to defend himself about hardships in our life. Never defends it promises two things. He promises he'll always be found in the midst of it. And he promises he won't waste any of it. He'll use it all for good. And if you understand that perspective, you recognize exactly where God can be found, even in the shipwrecks of our lives. That's really what this story is about. Dr. Luke shows how great of a historian and writer he is because this is the last big thing that happens in our our study of the book of Acts. Everything crescendos to this big scene. If this was a movie, they'd blow their budget on CGI just in this chapter alone. You know, it'd be the big moment. More details about ancient sailing technique can be found in this chapter than in all the other ancient manuscripts combined. 
So those of you that are sailors and like the sea will find a lot of the details here pretty interesting. The story is in four scenes, and we're just gonna work through the story, point out things as we go, and then we'll look back and draw some lessons out of it. Shalom read for us the scene where they really get caught in the storm and reach that point where they think all is lost, but we're gonna back up to the first scene when Paul sets sail finally for Rome. So turn with me back to the first verse of chapter 27, and I'm gonna read the first eight verses. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. You might want to just circle that phrase, the winds were against us. That's the whole theme of this first scene. It's foreboding. It's like you say that and the cello starts playing in the soundtrack. (laughs) The winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Paul now has appealed, as as Lou left us last week before King Agrippa, uh, giving his testimony, he has appealed to Rome And that, as we have seen, is God's way of protecting him. Even though Paul is in chains, he's lost his liberty. And some would say that that's a position of shame. It's actually exactly where God wants him. He is finally going to be out of the reach of those that have sworn their lives to kill him as a heretic. And so this appealing to Caesar both protects Paul but furthers God's mission for him. Eventually, he becomes one of many prisoners. And as they set out, From very early on, the winds are against them. They can't go where they intend to go, which is north of the island of Crete. And so they end up following the wind as it will take them on the leeward side, the southern side, out towards the open Mediterranean Sea. We see these statements that jump out. The winds were against us. Consequently, much time had been lost. Verse 9, sailing had become dangerous, you see. We're past the feast season. Now, for a Jew... He's talking about the the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which happens in somewhere around September and October. If you sailed in September or October, it's very dangerous. In November, it's deadly. So even Paul understands this, and he says, look, we should just stay where we are. And the port that they're in is not exactly the kind that has all the amenities that sailors and soldiers expect. (laughs) It's one of those small fishing areas, and and they don't want to stay there. But all they really want to do is go around from the leeward side to a better harbor on that same island. So it's not like they've chosen to do something outrageous, and uh, it begins by this calm wind. Read verse 15. When a gentle south wind began to blow, a southerly wind, 
exactly what they need to get to Safer Harbor. So they're lulled into this and they all agree to go. Now have you ever thought back through your life and had these disastrous moments and then as you trace back from the disaster, you can find that one decision that you made maybe? You realize that's what started the whole ball rolling? That's exactly where they're at here. It was not an unwise decision from a professional sailor's perspective, but Paul had a greater sense. Paul's operating on a different level than just what appears naturally. But Paul is the prisoner. He's not prominent here. And so they make the decision, and the storm picks up. Scene two. We know northeasters in New England, don't we? And there is a a great northeasterly wind that can develop in the Mediterranean Ocean, known as the Uroquillo, and it can reach hurricane forces, and it was deadly. We already read the verses. The ship was caught by the storm. And all that we could do was give way to it and be driven along. Slowly they see the island moving away from them and they're driven all the way out into open sea. Huge waves for two weeks, 14 days plus. They bind the ship. They actually ran huge cords under the ship literally to hold it together in the storm. As it got more desperate, they began throwing off the cargo. They began throwing off the tackle anything they can do to stay alive. And finally, we get to the point where it says in verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we, this is Luke speaking for everyone, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. This is a moment of utter desperation and perfect for a man of faith like Paul to suddenly emerge. Now, as we go forward into this part of it, I want you to watch Paul as Luke contrasts what he's doing at this moment of utter hopelessness with what others are doing. We've already read the passage where Paul stands up because he's a man of great faith. He has a close relationship with Christ. Christ actually communicates to him and says, not only are you gonna survive, but because you've beseeched, everyone on the ship is gonna survive. And so Paul becomes the voice of hope in a hopeless situation, which is what Christians ought to be. We ought to be the people that when all others are looking at circumstances and saying there's no hope, we ought to be the ones that rise in those moments because we do have a hope. The Bible says we are not like those who have no hope. Because our hope is an eternal hope. It's in one that sees through the darkest moments, who promises he'll be in the middle of it. Just like we saw in our Old Testament study. He doesn't deliver us from the fiery furnace, but he joins us in it with Rack Shack and Benny. He doesn't deliver us from the lion's den, but he becomes the angel of the Lord there with us, shutting the mouth of the lions. It is how God saved that the ancient kings saw and made them surrender to him. It was how he worked, because this God doesn't stand apart and subjugate, this God incarnates. That's who Jesus is. As John says in his first chapter, the word became flesh and tabernacled for a while among us. He is God who stepped down, he incarnated into our broken world. He experienced all of life with all of its hardship. He he experienced storms. He experienced crucifixion. He gives us hope 
because he endured. He said, take, take heart, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, when everything else has lost hope, people of faith rise. Paul is that for these people. And so when we read the actual shipwreck itself, let's be, pick up at verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, here's the first contrasting group, the sailors. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors for the bow. Here's one group. They're just out for themselves. They're going to abandon their whole ship, leave the soldiers, leave the prisoners behind, and just escape while the getting's good with the one thing that probably could survive going over whatever's out there and maybe make it to shore. Then Paul said to the centurion, so Paul emerges as a leader and becomes the guiding force, the soul of this group. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes and held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. Down to verse 36. So they all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. Altogether, there were 276 on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And now, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time they untied the ropes and held the rudders, and then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The second contrasting group, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship, and in this way, everyone reached land safely, just as God had promised. What was this deal with the, with the soldiers? If you were put in charge of a prisoner, if that prisoner escapes, you take their punishment. Death, if that's their punishment. That's what's happening here. But Julius liked Paul. And so they abandoned that. And consequently, God intervening in all these ways, his word to Paul comes to pass. 276 men survive and land on the island of Malta. Chapter 28, verse 1. Let's read that. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood. Now, we're going to stop right here. So they've just been through two weeks of just hell on the water. They finally just barely make it on land. 
There's this wonderful little scene where the, the people of the island come because it's cold and wet. They make a fire for them, showing what kind of servant leader Paul was. After all that, he gets up and he's helping collect brushwood. <laughs> he's just escaped near death by sea. And what happens? Let's read it. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out of the heat, fastened itself onto his hand. Life does that. It piles it on. Let's read on and see what happens. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, justice, by the way, justice was a god that they worshipped, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. (laughs) Verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official, the, the Roman official basically on the island. Uh, He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after praying, placed his hands on him and healed him. And when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So they do get into a great safe harbor and they wait out the winter, three months, and they finally continue their, their journey, which we'll, we'll pick up next week when, believe it or not, we finish not only our study of the book of Acts, we finish our study through the whole biblical narrative. I'm going to miss it. So next week's a big week. Make sure you're here for that. Let's look at this final scene. They arrive on Malta, and this is a season of healing. That's really the theme of this scene. It's a season for the men on the ship to heal and to recover, but also they bring healing as the power of God through Paul, the ministry of God in the gospel, comes to that island for the first time. Now, we see three things that happen, and again, as we've seen through the book of Acts, these are the apostolic manifestations of God confirming the message of the gospel through his apostles, which he said, these signs will follow you as you go. This is the first time the gospel comes to Malta, and Malta is a rather primitive people, primitive from the Romans' perspective. The Romans referred to people like the, the, those in Malta as barbarians, and it's actually a very derogatory term of anyone that didn't speak Greek. They were so arrogant in their thinking that what they basically said about their language was that all they're saying is bar, bar. The English equivalent, duh, duh. That's true. And so it's a very derogatory term, barbarians, bar, 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 bar. That changes the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic, doesn't it? Conan the duh, duh. The gospel always comes to these types of cultures in particular with these powerful manifestations. Paul, the viper, then he is healed. The healing of, of, uh, of the administrator's father is an instantaneous, miraculous healing. And then when it says, as the other islanders came, they were cured, that Greek word is more about the ministry of healing. It's likely, and most uh, experts think that Luke, the doctor, participated in that ongoing ministry of healing to the islanders. So you have both this spiritual prayer ministry that Paul conducted, but also Luke bringing the 
great knowledge and wealth of knowledge about medicine that God has put in nature, and both of those working hand in hand to minister to these people. And all of that in order that the real healing of the soul through the gospel can come to these people, which is always the real purpose of God doing the miraculous, to open up eyes so that they're open to the real healing of the soul that God makes possible through Jesus Christ. So all of this results in this great work of God on an island that they would not have hit had not God somehow moved them in that direction in spite of the nor'easterly wind. Somehow in the midst of all this tragedy, when they have lost all hope, God's somehow still accomplishing his will. It's a beautiful, powerful story. And what I want to do is draw from that some important lessons that both show us the arc plot of the book of Acts. Where we're supposed to be at this point in the story as we're about to come into this final chapter, but also present great encouragement to us about our storms. The first thing, Rome is looming. (laughs) Rome is close. We know that some time ago, at the very beginning of the book, that God said this gospel is going to first begin in Jerusalem, then it's going to fill Judea and Samaria, but then it's going to go to the other most parts of the world. And we know that he called Paul as the apostle to the Gentile world. And he told him, you're going to testify of me in Rome. You're going to do it in chains, but the gospel will be free. So we know that's going to happen, and it's just ahead. It's like those dreams. How many of you can't run in your dreams? Yeah. Isn't that frustrating? I get down on the ground, I push myself along, and I'm still not making progress. That's what this feels like. Rome's that way, we're going this way. But it's amazing, Malta is actually just southwest of Italy. So even though they totally got off course, they actually have a very short trip when it all turns out. Rome is looming. Second, Satan is storming. (laughs) We've been introduced to the enemy of the gospel throughout this this book, and Paul reminds us himself in Ephesians, our battle, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. In the same way we believe that there is God and there is good, we also believe that God has spiritual enemies. And we see Satan at work. Why? Because Satan owns Rome at this point. Rome has degenerated into a city of licentiousness. It's lost its focus, its former greatness. And if it continues on its track, it will degenerate very, very quickly. Satan owns Rome, and he knows it. So he's blowing Paul any way he can, except towards Rome. Third, Paul is thriving. In the midst of all of this muck and disaster and shipwrecks and viper bites, and everyone else losing hope, Paul is rising. It's phenomenal to contrast Paul's human condition from his youth to where he is now and his spiritual condition. The first time we see him is at the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, the first martyr of the faith. Paul is the one at that time saw Uh, in front of whom they all laid their garments, those who were the murderers of Stephen. So that indicates at that point, Paul was young and well-respected. He was a leader. He didn't do the dirty work, but he oversaw it, and he was respected. He was powerful. He was passionate in his zeal to kill Christians, and he had freedom to go anywhere he wanted. 
That was the Paul of, of youth. And then God saves him on the road to Damascus. And from that moment, there is constant threat of imprisonment and beatings. And the more God has used him, the less freedom he has. <laughs> and now here he is. He's in chains. He's bound to a centurion. He's on a ship going nowhere that's barely holding up. And yet in the midst of it, he is thriving. Why? For, because God is moving. God's at work. Everything that happens doesn't keep God's plan from going on. Here's a whole group of people who are now reached with the love of Christ that Paul would never have reached had it not been for the storm and yes, even the shipwreck. It's why Paul, later on, would write this to the church at Corinth. And I'd like you to say this with me. Thanks be to God who always leads us into triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Uh, This is this Paul. This Paul who experiences imprisonment, is bound by chains, not free to go where he wants to go, has experienced complete and utter loss of everything. And it's him who writes, yeah, God always leads us (laughs) into triumphal procession. There's two great truths here that Paul summarizes for us as Christians. No matter what's going on on the human level, from God's perspective, Everything he's doing is triumphant. And no storm, no shipwreck can keep that from being experienced in our life. That it's all gonna end up right where he wants it. That's powerful. And second, he will always use it for the good of the gospel. Others will be led and raised. And we see that here. We see that here. We need that perspective when we face hardships. This has not been a good week for the Sparling family. And some of you know about it. Started off with me getting uvulitis. That's why I'm hoarse today a little bit. That was just the wind blowing in a bad direction. Because Monday, the storm hit. We went for follow-up for Vitz thyroid operation. She had the right side of her thyroid removed, sat down with the doctor expecting a routine follow-up, and he let us know that they found cancer in Vitz thyroid. And now there's a second operation scheduled in early December to remove the other side, and then to explore and just see what they find, and then based on that, there'll be more treatments. And that's a storm. That's a storm. And then early Saturday morning, Anna called my 25-year-old daughter, and her husband David had gotten a phone call that David's youngest brother, Ben, had drowned in a lake in Pennsylvania. That's a shipwreck. Right now, as we're here today, Anna and David are with his family on the shores of that lake watching the searchers once again look for Ben's body. Can you imagine us going through that as I'm looking at this passage of scripture? And when it first hit me, you know, as I'm sitting down saying, God, not this passage, not this week. As I'm going through it, 
God begins working in my heart, and I realize what a gift this is. What a gift this is to look at these circumstances and to say, is it just theory or is it real? Does our faith allow us to rise in these moments? Because we, we frequently face storms. Sometimes there's shipwreck, but yeah, sometimes there's drowning as well. Sometimes there is death that we face. We, we don't find a safe harbor on this side. We don't. Sometimes there's that. When those circumstances come, how is God at work in them? What is he doing? Where is he? And here's his answer. I'm right in it. I'm right in it right now. Right with you. That's the the shepherd's psalm. Yes, even when I walk through the valley of shadow of death, because it will happen, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He's right in it. And when all the perishable things in life get exhausted in our attempt to survive, and all that is perishable perishes, and we've lost it all over, overboard, he is saying, there's more. I'm here. I'm, I'm enough. I'm enough for you in this. I'm here with you. And when everybody else around us has no cause for hope, he says, I'm your hope. I'm your hope. There is safe harbor. On this side or on the other side, there is always safe harbor ahead. And when we look at circumstances and say, this was meaningless, what a waste. There's no purpose in this loss. God is in it saying, no, I redeem all of it. It's never a waste. I'm gonna make good and I'm gonna use it for my glory and for your blessing. I don't waste any of it. I wanna tell you what's coming out of this. You know how that verse says, he leads us in triumphal entry and then uses it for others to come to Christ? Vit went to her, um, her family that she works for. And Vit has been praying for the two years she's been with them for an opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. You know, she loves them, and she loves the Lord, and she wants them to love the Lord. And she just never had that opening. And when she told them about this, they were broken. And they said to her, how can you even be here right now? And she said, it's the peace of Christ. She came home bawling. And I thought, well, of course she's bawling. She's got cancer. And she said, no, I would take this cancer for that open door so that I can say the name of Jesus in that family. God uses it. David, last night when I was speaking to him in the hotel, said, just pray. Pray for these young people that were with Ben when he died. Pray that God will use this for them to find peace in Jesus. See, that's the path forward through the storms. Let God use it. Paul would go on in this very book in 2 Corinthians and list all of his hardships. We'll take some time and look at those next week. Eventually, he actually is shipwrecked three times, (laughs) among other things. This was just the first. And at the end of that chapter, detailing all these things, this is what he says. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, 
I am strong. Why don't you say that verse? Just let's focus in on that one phrase. Just say that with me. When I am weak, I am strong. How is that possible? Here's how. As a Christian, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul says, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. That's how it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be surrendered to Christ so that Christ alone is living through me. And what that means is that when he's strong, I'm strong. Let's admit it. It's when we reach the end that we finally admit our weakness. It's when the ship is totally wrecked that we finally fully open up and let God be strong. Oh, if we could just get there before the storm. Say it one more time. When I am weak, I am strong. Let's pray together.